Are you ready to have some fun or are you just saying you want to have fun? It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. The theme of the week is that it's been beautiful outside, but a storm is coming. And I think the same could be said for the election. President Donald Trump was in Wilmington last weekend and he was trying to drum up support for U.S. Senate candidate Ted Budd. Had a couple surprises there. There were lots of candidates who shared the stage with former President Trump, but notably none of the folks who are maybe in swing districts. And there was some talk, too, about whether in this general election it would be good for Ted Budd to continue to align himself with President Trump or not. We got some polling that came in. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. Other surprises were the crowd was reported to be smaller than crowds we had seen in the past. I think the one in Duplin County had about 10,000 in 2016. President Trump spoke for over an hour and got the crowd really pumped up. But there was a surprise. You know, we, we had seen kind of, you know, the Bo Hines and the Ted Buds and Mark Robinson, our lieutenant governor, spoke. But one person took the stage, as reported by the News and Observer, and it got our attention. Right. Speaker Moore. Yeah. Speaker Tim Moore got up, gave a speech about public safety. I think it was less about, for Speaker Moore, this election. The rumors are out there that, well, they're not even rumors. I mean, Speaker Moore has talked about he wants to run for Congress. And many of us think that that Jeff Jackson seat is going to be redrawn either in December or next year, and that Speaker Moore is going to take the plunge. I think this might be Speaker Moore trying to show President Trump that I'm a guy you can rely on. So we'll see if that benefits Speaker Moore as he's looking at higher office. Which let me say, I don't even know if running for Congress is higher office than <laughs> Speaker of the House. You certainly get a pay bump. But I mean, just some random person in D.C. Yeah, one of 435 members and certainly a freshman. It's very much a seniority based system. But, you know, time to move on. And who knows where he goes from there? He is a young man. Well, I say young. He's my age. I mean, he still has a political. Seems like you're projecting here, but OK. Yeah. <laughs> young by politician standards. Okay. All right. There you go. In court reporting news, we talked a few weeks back about the Supreme Court case with the constitutional amendments where the North Carolina Supreme Court took a look at those constitutional amendments that passed a few years back and said that the legislature was gerrymandered and thus an unconstitutional legislature, so they can't put constitutional amendments on the ballot. If you need a refresher on that, there are plenty of podcasts, including ours, that cover that. So that case, what the Supreme Court said was that they needed to go back down to the trial court and argue through some of these different topics in the case. So that is back at trial court, and this week, the two sides are arguing over who will oversee that trial court fact-finding mission. Republicans would like a three-judge panel. Democrats would like Judge Ridgway to preside over. So there's some politics being played here, Sky. That's right. You could guess which side wants which, <laughs> um, but we will see who will preside over that case and what will come of those constitutional amendments. And it's worth noting, Paul Ridgway is a Democrat and then the three judges that would be appointed. Are they appointed by Justice Newby? Yes, they are. All right, little politics. Everyone talks about how we shouldn't have politics in our courts, but it just feels like it's nothing but politics in the courts. Turning to election-related news. We got some polling this week from our friends over at the John Locke Foundation. They put out a Civitas poll that shows this U.S. Senate race is neck and neck. So what's interesting about this particular poll is that they're running very similar polls every month. And so they're going to show you the differences in August to September. And that's important because of the Dobbs decision. You saw that spike for Democrats and where things are going now. The race for U.S. Senate shows that 
Sherry Beasley, former Chief Justice, is up by three-tenths of a percent against Ted Budd, current congressman representing that triad area. Going down the final stretch, we're in a horse race here. And kind of relates back to what we were talking about earlier with the Trump rally. You would think that Congressman Bud, yes, he needs to get out the vote. And no one gets out the vote better, I believe, than President Trump. However, it does come at a cost because President Trump tends to get the other side out as well, especially those suburban and urban voters that Congressman Bud needs, and especially in the suburbs. He's courting those voters. If you look at his ads, he's talking a lot about public safety, inflation, the price of groceries. Jonathan Feltz, his strategist, was talking about how Trump won North Carolina. And he won North Carolina, Ted Budd can win North Carolina, that kind of thing. And that's why it was good for him to be seen with him. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. We'll see what the next poll says. I'm sure we're going to hear about that rally next week when Ted Budd and Sherry Beasley face off in their first and only debate that I've seen so far. It's going to be October 7th on Spectrum News. Our friend Tim Boyum is hosting that. Now, we got some numbers in this poll about the North Carolina Supreme Court. Again, we talked earlier about the politics of our court system. We noticed this week that we started seeing some ads pop up of North Carolina Supreme Court candidates. But we have some polling. So there are two seats up for election in the Supreme Court. And the first seat is Republican Richard Dietz and Democrat Lucy Inman. And that race is 44 Dietz, 40 Inman. And then interestingly enough, the second seat is between Republican Trey Allen and Democrat Sam Irvin. And that's 46% Allen and 39% Irvin. And I brought this up to you. It was just interesting to me that you would think the same people who were participating in this poll would vote the same way on those. But the numbers were a little bit different. I have been told, this is coming from Republicans and Democrats, most of the independent expenditure money is being pumped into the Supreme Court races on both sides. So in addition to seeing ads from the candidates, turn on your TV and computer and you're likely to see an ad from the independent expenditures. Turning to the General Assembly polling in that same poll, um, the generic North Carolina General Assembly ballot was 46% Republican and 44% Democrat, pretty close. And that last August poll was 48 Republican, 43 Democrats. So it's evening out a little bit as we get closer to the election. Democrats certainly have benefited from the Dobbs decision. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast. They don't seem to be able to pull that poll over the Republicans. Is it enough to keep Republicans from getting super majorities? We did get some approval rating numbers from this Civitas poll, including President Joe Biden and Governor Roy Cooper. President Biden's approval rating was about 39%, and it was 38% in August, so it was up almost a percentage point. And then Governor Cooper's approval rating was 45%, and it was almost 47% in August, so it was down almost two percentage points. We've talked about it before. A baseline that a politician wants is 40%. And the assumption with 40% is that your party is going to say, yeah, we approve of our guy. He's doing a good job. And so whenever you get over 40%, that means you're getting undecideds to say you're doing a good job. Maybe you're even getting Republicans to say you're doing a good job. So Roy Cooper, certainly over the 40% threshold, but President Biden seems to have some problems here in the state, even though he is on the uptick, as you pointed out, but seems as if a few Democrats are going, yeah, I don't know about this guy. One reason that might be is that he is known for his flubs, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so when you see President Biden on TV, you're just cringing. You're just waiting for the moment when he says something off or messed up and you can tell he's aging. His appearance. Tough. It is really tough. I saw him on 60 Minutes last weekend and he was walking through the Oval Office and you know, it looked like two men walking through their retirement home. <laughs> I watched it too. 
really did. And again, you know, it's reflective. I believe there's a lot of polling out there showing, I think, upwards of 65% of Democrats do not want President Biden on the ballot in 2024. Now, listen, President Biden can't help that he's old. We're all getting there if you're fortunate enough. Well, you just called yourself a young man earlier. Hey, I'm a young man by politician standards, but I think you're getting into your 80s. You are old by any standard. As we get closer to the election and further away from the Dobbs decision, abortion is not going away. Especially for Democrats. I think Republicans want it to go away, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. We saw a press conference this week here in Raleigh that featured Governor Roy Cooper and the president of Emily's List. Now, Emily's List is an organization dedicated to helping elect pro-abortion rights candidates throughout the country. It's, it's interesting. Emily's List means early money is like yeast. And, uh, Didn't know that? Yeah, so they pump money into a lot, mainly women candidates who are pro-choice. And we saw uh, Vernetta Austin, Representative Vernetta Austin, Senator Sidney Batch, Senate candidate Mary Wills Bodie, and of course, Representative Julie Von Hafen. And they were really just driving this message about abortion rights. Notably, the only male involved in this was Governor Cooper. (laughs) Certainly, Republicans are on defense as it relates to abortion rights, you know, whether we're going to have first trimester autonomy and then regulations later, is there even going to be a bill in 2023? We also saw on the Republican side that they are continuing their effort to try to get the conversation about another issue, mainly public safety. You said earlier, Speaker Moore talked about it at the Trump event. And then this week, we saw some mailers against Democratic candidates in swing districts where they were purporting to be wearing defund the police shirts. You saw those go out in mailers only in swing districts. Representative Ricky Hurtado, Alamance County, Representative Terrence Everett here in Wake County, uh, Representative Brian Farkas in Pitt County. Those are three ground zero districts for Republicans to try to flip to their party. So the basically it was showing uh, these representatives, uh, especially Terrence Everett and Ricky Hurtado, showing them in T-shirts where they had posed on Facebook or social media while they had been Photoshopped to have the words defund the police as if they were wearing that T-shirt. Up in arms. People went on Twitter like, this is bad. Let's be fair here. Both campaigns take a lot of license and liberties stretching what is accurate. The Republican response was, these guys signed a pledge, I think it was back in 2020, where essentially it sounded as if they wanted to defund the police. Now, these candidates are saying that is not who we are. And how did these get all of that attention? That's right, because Jeff Jackson tweeted it. (laughs) That's right, he did. This week, we got to talk to DMV Commissioner Wayne Goodwin about his long political career, his family, and his life. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Division of Motor Vehicles Commissioner Wayne Goodwin, welcome to the podcast. To start us off, tell the folks who are listening, what do you do as DMV Commissioner? What's an average day like? Uh, It's managing uh, folks who are in charge of the driver license offices and the folks who oversee the license plate agencies. Uh, It's putting out fires, frankly, Mm -hmm. because uh, as folks have seen whenever they visited a DMV during the course of their their lifetime, uh, (laughs) there's sometimes are hiccups here and there and trying to find cures for those hiccups. Um, It involves working with legislators, working with local officials, working with uh, folks who can provide uh, third-party services to help us do our job better. And even more, because we also are the, we have the uh, state's 
uh, oldest law enforcement agency with our license and theft bureau. I didn't mm. know that. Okay. So DMV is one of those agencies that I would say most North Carolinians interact with, maybe public education being number one, DMV's number two. If you have a driver's license, you are interacting with DMV. Is it about focusing on customer service? Is that what it is? Because you hear the jokes, right? right? You know, the long lines at DMV. Customer service is our number one goal in improving it, making it as good as possible. And uh, whether that's shorter lines or shorter wait times, putting uh, more services online, uh, securing identities, making sure that folks, uh, when they get an ID, they know that that's, that's, this is legit. Uh, so it, it is uh, something that I regularly face. And believe it or not, when I talk with folks across the state, they they are surprised to hear that some counties, some offices, there are no lines. I mean, I've been traveling right. the state uh, when I was. Where senior. are they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in many instances, they're outside of the metro areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, How would you recommend someone they they need to renew their driver's license or their tag? What would you tell them right now they could do to kind of avoid those long lines? course we encourage folks to make appointments but there there are only so many appointments per day when you get there if you have a smartphone sign in with your smartphone and then you can go wait anywhere in the vicinity not to wait in line you can do something else get coffee whatever we instituted that a few months ago and then now because i know there are folks that don't trust those old smartphones right but they've gone to restaurants and doctor's offices where they have the the flashing buzzing vibrating little uh devices those are going to start popping up in driver license offices starting next month. That's great. And that way, and they'll have about a mile radius. You can go get a coffee, a biscuit. You can go see your grandma for a little bit, whatever you want to do. And then it'll, you'll get a text that says, okay, you're number three in line. Come on back. That's the way we're trying to serve our customers better. Let's take it back a little bit. Tell us about you growing up. Where are you from? What was your family life like? I'm from a small town called Hamlet mm-hmm. down in Richmond County. It's on the border with South Carolina. Um, Technically, uh, I lived my formative years in Gao, G-H-I-O, a little small wow. farm mm-hmm. community on the border of Scotland in Richmond County. So uh, when I was seven or eight, I moved to the big big city of Hamlet. Uh, <laughs> my dad was a, was a, uh, a grocer. He was a grocery store manager and a farmer. Uh, my, my mom worked in the textile mills and before that the hosiery mills there. Didn't know it at the time, but we uh, uh, were quite poor. Uh, but yeah. you know, but we didn't know it. We just knew we had family, we had neighbors, we had our church, we had our, our public schools, uh, and we all took care of each other. My uh, dad became disabled at 33, mm-hmm. and I was a, so I, as, as a young fellow, I had to take on more responsibilities, and um, and that was that sh- shaped me tremendously, particularly as I later went to the legislature and served. Uh, chairing some committees on mental health and the like. And my dad fought uh, uh, mental illness for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that affected us. So growing up, I was impacted by the importance of community, church, family. Uh, we were on uh, free lunch. We lived in our mobile home for a long, long time. And uh, if it weren't for the the faith and support of my, my school teachers and our like I said, but my grandparents and our neighbors, uh, I wouldn't be here with you today. Uh, I appreciate my mom taking me to the library, you know, mm-hmm. as much as she could because, you know, we didn't have much, but we knew the public library. I could learn about the big world around us. Fast forward, uh, I have two sisters. Uh, I have mm-hmm. a sister that's uh, three years younger than another sister that's about 13 years younger. So, so I have siblings. And, but uh, but in, it was, in a way, it was idyllic, like, like a Mayberry-type life. Um, but we had a lot of challenges with uh, dad's, my dad's health, mm. and with uh, he was on disability all, you know, almost all my life, and uh, and I got to I became to appreciate uh, that there are services that are safety nets for our families. But I've learned to work hard and pray and, and just to you know make my mom and dad proud as I, as I could. And fortunately, it resulted in like you mentioned mentioned uh, earlier before we went on the air about a. Uh, uh, received the Moorhead Scholarship yeah. to Chapel Hill. And, Impressive. Well, I, I was going to state, of all things. Okay. I planned, planned to be an engineer, uh-huh. and then uh, the Moorhead came a-knocking, and, and Mom and Dad said, Son, you're going to be wearing blue from now instead of red. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that's that's how, how it was. But my formative years really shaped me. I, I worked on the farm. We had a small farm. We squash, beans, peas, corn, uh, had uh, hogs. My dad had some cows a long, long time mm-hmm. ago. Uh, but it was a real small farm, but I worked there. My first job uh, off the farm was 
as the assistant to a junior high school janitor. Wow. Yeah, you talk about a tough job. Yeah. Because the assistant to the janitor gets the jobs the janitor doesn't want to touch. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then my next job was in radio, and then uh-huh. later on went to, went to college and everything else. When you were younger, and you know your family is somewhat in crisis with your yes. father's yes. mental health challenges, did you see a future in which you wanted because I know you also went on to law school, became an attorney, practiced, and involved in politics, obviously. That's why you're here. Did you see that life in front of you as a young man or a young boy, I should say? Well, I was always was hopeful. Okay. I always was confident. I mean, I, I mean, we had, I mean, my goodness, I can't, I can't tell you. It was, uh, you know, Dad was in and out of hospitals yeah. and, and facilities and the like due to, due to his health challenges, and, and that affected us. But I... I'm not sure how or why completely, but I always maintained a sense of hope and a sense of, okay, I'm going to do this. And I always felt like uh, I'd be involved in public service in some way. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because of the way I was raised. Sure it was. But it was also, I think, uh, just by happenstance, I was, <laughs> I was, my birthday is George Washington's birthday, okay. February 22nd. And the uh, first thing you always learn about, uh, first president. So I learned a lot about public service. And, and, and we talked about Terry Sanford before for yeah. our, for our uh, broadcast here. And learn about uh, leaders of yeah. the day, and and uh, so I always remained hopeful. Didn't know, I mean, nothing's certain, yeah. but always felt like, okay, if I keep my nose down, work hard, play by the rules, do my very best, help others, then I'll hopefully accomplish what I'd like to accomplish. Did your mom and dad push you to reach big? They were supportive. Um, my, when my dad became ill, he was you know in and out of hospital. Yeah. So, but he was, you know, we. He would go to ball games with me and things like that. But he he couldn't, you know, do as much as as you know as as many dads could do. But uh, but mom took me to the library. Yeah. My grandparents took me everywhere. My, my teachers. I remember my uh, my first grade teacher uh, loaned me a set of encyclopedias because we didn't have wow. any, and I kept them for several years. And I gave them back, of course. But I but I read those things religiously, yeah. and and you know. But again, it was it was a combination of support and. I mean, no. I mean, nobody said you can't do this. Right. They just said they 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 try to help as best they could. Yeah. For our young listeners, encyclopedias are <laughs> <laughs> bound editions of Wikipedia. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. That. <laughs> and now we know. <laughs> so, talk to us a little bit about how you got involved in politics. I was involved in student government mm. at a young age in. in elementary school and junior high and high school. I was student vice president at the high school and um, in Richmond County, home of the Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and just, you know, as over, over a period of time, um, became active in, in partisan politics. But, but I, I knew that there would be a role somehow you know, in the political realm because public service is shaped by politics, and there's politics and everything for, yeah. for good or ill. That's mm-hmm. right. So in 1996, you put your hat in the ring for NC House. Can you talk about your decision? I imagine you're practicing law at this point back in Richmond County. That's right. I had been home four years from law school and was uh, practicing, uh, uh, you know, small town law firm. You, you know, whatever comes across your door, you help folks. But as you may recall, my hometown was Hamlet, and a yeah. lot of what was happening at that point was in the shadow of the Imperial Foods fire. Yeah, which tragedy. Was, which was a tragedy there in 1991. So there were a lot of, a lot of litigation involved yeah. with that. But the, the gentleman who was in the House at that point, uh, who was longtime attorney, longtime legislator, he'd been in and out of the House for many times, uh, was thinking about retiring. And so I let him know that I was interested. And, uh, of course, uh, I was still very young, and I had, had served as the uh, Democratic Party County Chair uh, for a few years before that. Uh, so I, I started talking with folks, meeting with folks, and including uh, someone that uh, people who have studied North Carolina politics may recall, uh, the late uh, Sheriff R.W. Goodman, mm-hmm. who uh, served as sheriff 44 years. He knew that I was you know, quite young. There was I did have a primary, and it just so happened that um, my primary opponent was someone who'd also been in the legislature before, but he happened to be an attorney, okay. and he also was my minister. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> Which made for an interesting... Interesting election. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get through the primary, and you didn't have a Republican opponent that no. first That's term. Right. I don't think you had one your second term either. That's right. I uh, did, did not have a Republican opponent in 96, 98, or 
2000, and then in 2002 I did, and 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 that, and that race was actually very amicable because the uh, the Republican attorney he and I taught Sunday school together, same Sunday right? school class. Is there only one church in your town? <laughs> Everybody no, goes there. No, no. I, whenever when I got married, I promised Melanie we'd move to the big church. So we moved to a bigger church, and, okay. and, and uh, so uh, so. But uh, but that was the only time I had a, a you know a Republican opponent in the legislative races. So that area of the state, it's trended, I think, more Republican. Is that safe to say? Yes. And here you are, a Democrat. Was it a matter of the area then just a Democratic stronghold, or was it a more of a moderate area where you reflected that district in such a way where they felt good about you being on the ballot and sending you to Raleigh? Well, as with local elections, it's, you know, it's about who you know, and yeah. they, they knew me. And yeah. I knew them, and and everybody, you know, if, if you didn't go to church with them, mm-hmm. uh, you were kin to them. Or if you didn't, if you weren't kin to them, you went to school with them. Or you, did, everybody knew each other. So no matter uh, one's politics, uh, at least while I was there, um, you know, I had a lot of folks who were not Democrats who would who said they I was the only Democrat they'd vote for because they they knew me, they knew I my, I was raised, you know, they they knew my my background, they knew that that. Uh, you know, you know, today we talk about country over party. I was about community over party, right. and uh, you know that was that was important to me. And I think that's that's something we need even more of now is is focusing on uh, the greater good. Uh, there's a feeling among political observers that Democrats have somewhat forfeited in the rural areas, and then conversely, Republicans have just forfeited the urban areas. And the battleground is in the suburbs. You have any thoughts on that? Do you think there is a path for a young Wayne Goodwin or Melanie Goodwin, for that matter, who succeeded you after you left the house to win in those areas? Just as I was thankful that no one gave up on me, I would not want any political party to give up on uh, fighting to represent everybody, notwithstanding the math that yeah. folks do and the calculus that folks do and the strategy that folks have on these things is that is never to give up. And, I, and I've been very you know thankful, you know, Governor Cooper, you know, mm-hmm. he, his company from a rural community yeah. and his background and where he went, his area when he served in the legislature, uh, he, he knows quite well that we can't leave anybody behind. So walk us through your political career because you've been lots of places. Well, let's see. Goodness. Well, I've been, I was active in party politics mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, gosh, since a teenager mm-hmm. uh, my first political act i remember was in fourth grade doing a poll uh, wow <laughs> and i said polling whether whether mother my classmates would vote for jimmy carter or jerry ford which uh, did they, they choose they, they chose uh, jimmy carter did they and okay. of course you know they, they knew that he was a peanut farmer and a lot mm-hmm. of folks i went to school with were, you know were they, they could uh, understand that and empathize mm-hmm. with that my activities some have been the political parties but also I, I knew that i wanted to be in the legislature uh because you know, i enjoy policy making and wanted to help my community and i wound up being the youngest person to represent my community at, uh, at that point you were in your what mid-20s late 20s it was uh, yeah i filed when i was uh, 28 and was sworn in just before i turned 29 wow and we got involved in young democrats and uh, rose in the ranks through there became president of the young democrats of north carolina and then while I was serving as president in my second term as president of the Young Democrats in North Carolina. Was this when you were in law school? It was just after, just after law school. Okay. Uh, so I was active you know, through college and, and during law school and after law school. And then, uh, then jumped into the legislature and served there four terms. And uh, that's when I met. Of course, I'd met Melanie mm-hmm. you know, some years earlier, but. That's when we we really connected, uh, and we, maybe we can talk about that. But, we we do need to talk about that. <laughs> and uh, and then and then uh, and then she ran for the legislature because I had chosen I was I wanted to uh, to run for commissioner of labor. A lot of folks forget that because it was again still a few years after the Imperial Foods fire, mm-hmm. and I had some ideas about how we could address you know, workplace concerns and 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 have a Department of Labor that was working not only to protect workers but also to work hand-in-hand with the Department of Commerce and bring jobs to rural communities and the like. I did not win that general election, but I wound up in Jim Long, who was insurance mm-hmm. commissioner. He said, hey, you know, you've got experience in the legislature. You, you're an attorney. You, you worked on insurance matters, insurance law. Why don't you come over? And next thing I know, Jim Long, who was insurance commissioner, invited me to come over. And I, uh, well, so while Melanie was in the legislature, I was the uh, assistant general counsel and assistant commissioner of insurance. In 2008, Jim Long decided at the last minute that he didn't he didn't uh, didn't want to serve, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know at that time that he was having some health issues. Yeah. Uh, I served two terms as insurance commissioner. I joined the Department of Insurance as, a, as the assistant general counsel and assistant commissioner in 2005, mm-hmm. and then became commissioner in 2008, mm-hmm. and served there through 2016. And, uh, and then after I was no longer the state insurance commissioner and serving on the council of state, we worked with some great folks in both, from both parties, mm-hmm. uh, uh, then uh, went back to doing some legal work and some consulting. And, and then uh, I really, you know, my, my heart was always, you know, in public service. Did serve as chair of the state Democratic Party uh, for, for a couple of years, three, four, a few years. And then uh, I decided I'd, I'd like to rejoin public service and cause that's where my heart has always been since I was a you know, kid and yeah. one. If there is someone I'd love to have on the podcast, it would have been Jim Long, uh, insurance commissioner, larger than life, uh, was known to uh, have a few drinks now and again and speak his mind. That must have been a fun gig working under him. He was he was hilarious. He was he was tenacious. He was dedicated. And uh, of course, we lost him very unfortunately very quickly. He he passed about a month into my term as insurance commissioner. And I was one of several folks who provided. Uh, provided the eulogy and and that was a lot of part, part of a lot of my remarks were about was about how he was larger than life there are stories about him when he served in the house mm-hmm. someone even said he had a motorcycle up on the general assembly roof one night I vaguely recall <laughs> i've heard various stories about things on the roof of the legislature but i won't go into that but but, but, so, but, but, but it wouldn't surprise me yeah he was a fun fun guy quick with a joke great mm-hmm. stories and uh yeah we certainly miss him how would you describe yourself in your service in the House? What kind of legislator were you? Well, I focused on economic development, particularly for rural communities. And at that point, uh, our Tier 1 counties were getting or having to pay more and more and more for their share of, of Medicaid. And mm-hmm. that was having a tremendous budgetary impact on counties uh, in, in my district and, and in similar districts. Uh, in addition to economic development for rural North Carolina, I uh, worked on every public education bill that I could, worked on ways to improve access to the courts. As an attorney, I focused mm-hmm. on that. There was also legislation to focus on children and families. Uh, there was some legislation to protect uh, children who, uh, folks may not be familiar with the Munchausen by proxy, but there was there was a loophole in the law where, where uh, folks who were harming kids were not receiving the appropriate uh, justice, mm-hmm. and we to address that, that hole in the law there. Uh, and I also worked on the health care bill of rights and mm-hmm. other things, too, because that was a, a growing issue and still is mm-hmm. about access to affordable health care. So you referenced meeting your wife. Can you talk about that? Well, we met back when we were, were uh, students at UNC Chapel Hill. I was in law school and she was an undergrad and we met on a double date with different people. And tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. Uh, well, it, the, 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 the short version is that uh, as, I, as I recall, she and her her date were having an argument, and they, they she preferred talking to me at that point. And my date was late. My date was uh, a reporter for the Daily Tar Heel, which is the uh-huh. campus newspaper. So we wound up talking then, and then and then every you know every year for several years after that, we kept bumping into each other at some of some event or somewhere, and and you know, and then it just so happened that. Uh, a few years later, she was working for the Council for Women, you know, here in state government. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, uh, serving on a board and also representing a domestic violence shelter. And we had two domestic violence shelters in, in my home county. One of them had been given uh, and had been awarded a grant, and the other one had not. And I litigated that. And so we met in a, in a courtroom situation and we didn't know we were going to bump into each other wow. and that was just before I was elected to the legislature and then uh, and then uh, not long after that uh, when I started the legislature in January of 1997 that there was a letter on my desk it was from Melanie she said I know I know that you know congratulations but she said but I know we keep bumping into each other I know the legislature is uh, comprised of a lot of folks who probably aren't our age right and, uh, and uh so she asked me out kids these days would call that shooting her shot yeah, <laughs> yeah well it worked <laughs> um so so we started meeting on tuesdays and then next thing we know we had started having lunch several days a week and then we started dating and uh, that was in february of 97 and we were engaged in may wow and then 
know, had a year-long engagement. We married in 1998, and as I told folks on the floor of the house, and the Speaker Brubaker, he's Speaker then, I said, yeah. Mr. Speaker, I said, this coming weekend, there will be a new rules chairman and a new Speaker of the House in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was right. Yeah. <laughs> Melanie Wade Goodwin was my go-to legislator. I was a young lobbyist working for the covenant with North Carolina's children. She had just taken your seat. You were, you ran for labor commissioner and she took the house seat and what an incredible person and legislator she was. I was working on a lot of child welfare issues, juvenile justice, education issues. And, you know, as lobbyists, we all have that legislator, you know, you go to first and she was it for me. I probably talked to her every day of session. What a huge loss we all felt in 2020. Uh, She had battled breast cancer for quite some time. And I know you were still hurting about that. I saw you posted recently. It was... It was, yeah, it was uh, two years since she passed. Yeah. You doing okay? Well, yeah. Do the best you can. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about her public service? Sure. Well, she uh, took a, f- a few years to work for state government for the Council for Women, and uh, one of her activities that she had was she helped coordinate for the, the women's conference, first women's conference in China, and uh, she did a lot of things to help women and children and families. So as soon as she finished law school for Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, by that time we had been married a couple of years. She graduated in 2000. She set up her own law firm, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean. This doesn't happen normally, but you know, there she was. She'd only we'd been married just a few years. She'd only been practicing law for four years, and there all of a sudden she had been elected to the legislature. She had such a connection mm-hmm. with everybody, mm-hmm. and you know, the folks in the courthouse loved her, her clients loved her, even the folks on the other side. They knew that she was doing doing the best that she could for everybody. And just a few years into her service, she was uh, she was named the citizen of the year mm-hmm. for, the, for our county and she wasn't a showboat mm-hmm. you know, she wasn't a show horse you hear about folks being yeah. either workhorse or short or, or workhorse she was a workhorse yeah. and um she very quietly and diligently you know worked on legislation worked on uh, reached across the aisle you know, on many on many uh, pieces of legislation and uh, and that was evident when uh the legislature honored her uh in uh, july of last year there were uh, folks from both sides of the, of the aisle who spoke about their time working with her. So I don't think she had ever planned on being in politics whatsoever, which, you know, I'm thankful that she, you know, I'm thankful it worked out because, you know, she was a blessing not only to me and, and our family, but certainly for the community and the folks that she fought for. So she leaves the legislature, and I know eventually she ended up over at the Industrial Commission. In 2010, uh, she had decided, because of the cancer diagnosis, she had decided she was not going to run for re-election. And she would have won. I mean, she was just, I mean, mean, everybody loved her back home. So she could receive the care that she needed, and her her physicians were here in the the Triangle, here in the Raleigh uh, area, Uh, and to be close to her parents, uh, uh, who who live in North Raleigh. Uh, And we moved here, Mm -hmm. and... um, and she decided that she, she'd like to continue public service. And because part of the law practice that, that we'd had together some years before focused on, on uh, workplace injuries and a workers' comp and uh, so on, uh, Governor Purdue, uh, I believe, was instrumental in, have, you know, in, in asking her to, uh, to serve on the Industrial Commission. And she eventually she served as deputy commissioner and then was in the, her last year and a half or so, uh, she uh, served as chief deputy. I had spoken to her months before she died we talked about firefighters getting cancer yes and the industrial commission hears a lot of those cases she would uh very helpful mm-hmm. and uh giving me again it was it was as if it was 20 years ago she's yeah. giving me kind of the legal translation of what we're trying to do what a special person and i have to say this what a beautiful woman she oh. was too in every way Oh yeah, I I, I, uh, I married above myself, and uh, you know, I, I was reminded that from day one uh, by everybody I knew. But I, and I knew that, and I, and, uh, and she was you know beautiful from you know from the first time I met her, and beautiful you know, through the last time I saw her. Do you think someone was pranking you when you got that letter on your desk? 
<laughs> I, I did wonder about it, and, and particularly when she asked me out. I said, and then we found out later because uh, I said, you know, I, I had thought about asking her out years earlier. I said, oh, you want to go out with me? She said she had thought the same thing. She thought about asking me out, but she never hmm. thought about it. Incredible, so you know, serendipitous. I know, you know. So you know, but then again, you know, the fact that it was the right time. You know, if we'd asked each other out when we thought about it, you know, things may have gone a different direction. But yeah. the timing worked out great, and she initiated that, and you know, made my life what it is. One of the hopes I had in life growing up that I would, you know, fall in love and get married and have a family. And she gave me that. She did. Continuing talking about your family, you have a great social media presence. If folks have not followed you, they should follow you. And you post a lot with your children. Can you talk about your children? Oh, yes. Madison is a 20 years old tomorrow. All right. And uh, uh, and she uh, is a student at Appalachian State studying to be an educator, okay. an elementary school teacher. And she's straight A. She's doing awesome. Her mom mm. would be so proud. So of course. Proud. And she grew up watching her mom and dad in politics. Yeah. So she's, you know, she knows a lot more about it than, than kids her age. And then Jackson uh, just started high school uh, in, uh, in August. And he's doing great. Life has a way of working itself out. And I've, you know, I've been blessed to be able to spend even more time with them. And, and that's especially, you know, vital and valuable given that they lost their mom. So, uh, so we, you know, we try to do even more together than we yeah. did before. And you know, I, I, know, I know sometimes folks say it's kind of hokey to put things, but I just like spending time with my kids. And I love it. Whether you know, whether we're going to the beach or the mountains or bowling or the state fair or or eating at eating at a restaurant or or just goofing off playing board games or hanging out with our old dog, you know, uh, you know, we you know we post that online and, and uh, you know and I, you know I enjoy my kids. Yeah, and, and I love them. You also use social media in your work as dmv commissioner so you're popping in mm-hmm. to various places around the state and it's it's kind of refreshing to see because you're like hey i'm just doing a pop in over here in this county no you you let people know there's no lines here <laughs> well i want folks to know the truth and you know and and also that that i'm visiting their communities i'm not just in raleigh I, in, fact, in fact i prefer being out of raleigh as right. much as possible and, uh, of course, as y'all know, this is a huge state, 100 counties. Yeah. We have 117 or so driver license offices, about 100 and, almost 130 license plate agencies. So there's a lot of interfacing with the public. And I just like folks to know, okay, there's an office near you. Mm-hmm. Here's what our successes are. Here's what our challenges are. Here's how you can avoid the lines. Here's how you can have a better experience with whatever service you might need yeah. from the DMV. And uh, and of course that's that's where the that's where the kids are these days. I, <laughs> I haven't done TikTok yet, but I'm I'm close. I'm, I'm, I'm close. Uh, so, but it's uh, you know, but I, I I do like letting folks know that you know what what I observe in their community and that I'm coming to their community soon. As you know, our politics are divided today. If you had a magic wand and you could fix anything in our politics, what would it be? What I would say is having more opportunities for folks to work mm-hmm. together across the aisle work on cooperation, work on compromise. Unfortunately, the word compromise has become a dirty word, and that is, yeah. that is not, that should not be a dirty word. Compromise is the oil that makes the engine run, and it's just unfortunate that folks are closing off the opportunity for progress and for, and for success by putting, building these walls up. So that's what my, I would wave my magic wand and say, everybody sit around the table, work out things in a calm, civil way, and use compromise. DMV Commissioner Wayne Goodwin, we appreciate everything you are doing for the state of North Carolina. We appreciate you being on the podcast today. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. We appreciate Commissioner Goodwin for stopping by and just being so open about not only his political career, but talking about his family, specifically Melanie Wade Goodwin, who, as I said in the interview, was a great friend 
And let me just make a note here, Scott, because I know, you know, you're a young lobbyist and, you know, you hear these announcements about deaths of former legislators. And I remember when I was a young lobbyist and I'd hear like, you know, this senator died and I didn't really think anything of it. I am now the point in my career, 51 years old, started in my early 30s down there. When I get these death announcements, they really hit me hard. Because I remember working with Senator Tony Rand. I remember working with Mark Baznight. And I remember working closely with Representative Goodwin. So when I get these announcements, they just really hit me. And uh, I, I miss her. I, I missed her in the General Assembly. I also miss just bumping into her around town or talking to her on the phone. Wayne, thank you for sharing a little bit about her life and her public service and what she meant to everyone who worked with her, regardless of where you were politically. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week is from Brooke Medina. She's at Brooke underscore Medina underscore two underscores. And her tweet was fellow millennials. What is the most millennial thing about you? I'll go first. My mom still gives me Easter baskets. Now I told you I thought this was going to be hilarious. A bunch of people responding with millennial type things. But a lot of people were just discussing Easter baskets in the thread. (laughs) I guess non-millennials were weighing in about Easter baskets. Someone said my mom still sets out presents from Santa before I wake up on Christmas. (laughs) I didn't know that was a millennial thing. I didn't know that either. What about you? What's the most millennial? You are a millennial. You tell me what, what do you think the most millennial thing about me is? First, let me just say this. Brooke Medina over at the John Locke Foundation has a great Twitter feed and she post so many positive things I think about politics. She could be using the do politics better hashtag when she posts, especially about the way we show grace to each other. So I want to just say that. But here's my theory about you being a millennial. To look at you, you would think Sky David is a millennial. Okay. I don't know where this is going. Go ahead. But you're really down deep an 82-year-old woman. Why? (laughs) You've already talked about my bedtime before. We don't need to go through that. Yeah, there is your bedtime. You are so much on a routine. You have to do things a certain way. As if, you know, you're a little set in your ways about things. The volume has to be on an even number. Uh, You have to eat at the same time. You seem to even be a little put out by millennials. We've had some conversations about that. What do you mean? You do not, you are not a fan of the holding hands and affirming each other in meetings. That is no, not, not who you are. That's more of a nonprofit thing, I think, isn't it? Like the, oh, let me back up. Some of the breakout. Yeah. We've, we've icebreakers. Yeah. And I don't even understand. Like if we're there to discuss one thing, like let's discuss it and get off the phone. Why do we have to have a pre-meeting and then a debrief? (laughs) Like we were there for the meeting. We had the meeting. It's over. Let's move on. Yes. I did have a runner up for tweet of the week that we didn't go with, but is relevant to all of us. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a lot of rain from Hurricane Ian this weekend And they've canceled, well, they've moved the Bluegrass Festival indoors for all the outdoor venues. It's going to rain all weekend. But somebody had tweeted, and she's Katie Kokow, and I have to assume she's in Florida. But it's the six horsemen of an impending hurricane in order of severity. Publix begins selling hurricane cakes. I saw those on Twitter. Two, Midwestern family starts checking in. I can attest to that. Three, Disney closes. Four, editor asks you to check out plywood supply at Home Depot. Jim Cantor arrives and Waffle House closes. Can I add some NC poll things to that list? Yeah, sure. Number one, Governor Cooper puts on the emergency yeah. management services shirt. What do they call that? Hurricane casual or something? <laughs> Hurricane casual. Uh, yeah. And so the press conferences start. Now, we don't have Michael Sprayberry anymore giving us the, you know, call someone, tell mm-hmm. him you love him kind of thing. But the press conferences are going to start any minute now. Number two, legislators are getting in Johnny Boats in their district and are rescuing people from flood. At Senator Danny Earl Brett Jr. <laughs> 
<laughs> he is a one-man rescue crew down in Robinson County. And not to make light of the devastation that this hurricane brings, to, especially to eastern North Carolina. And actually, a couple of years ago, we saw it in western North Carolina as well. And we should also point out, hurricanes play a role in elections and how well these politicians respond. Speaking to the Midwestern families, anytime there is something happening out here. Like my grandpa will call me and be like, did the hurricane hit you? I'm like, I live in Raleigh. It just means that we had a lot of rain. When I lived back at my last place, he was like, what about Brit? I'm like, she just lives down the hill from me. Like we live in the same complex. We're both fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, we've had some hurricanes come through I the center of the state. Yeah. yeah. Devastated. Charlotte was devastated. My wife was affected back in high school. I think it was Hugo. They were without electricity for two weeks. Wow. I don't like these storms. For one, we inevitably will have, you know, loss of life. I just hope everyone is tries to get as prepared as you can, stay safe, and take care of your neighbors if you can. The thing about hurricanes in North Carolina is it's not just the storm. It is that rain. Trees fall over into houses. Electricity gets lost. People try to drive through these flooded roads. There's drownings. So just be careful. And when the creek rises, find high ground wherever you can. And because this is a sports podcast, just guys talking sports here. I uh, do want to know that NC State is playing Clemson on Saturday, two top 10 teams. They don't know whether or not that's going to happen. It's at Clemson, so that's something to keep your eye on as well. Top 10 teams, as told to you by some computer. Speaking of top 10 teams, I'm a top 10 <laughs> softball player. <laughs> just might be. I would say your statistics prove otherwise. I play on a bad team. Michael Jordan played on some bad Chicago Bull teams for a while until he got Scottie Pippen. I need a Scottie Pippen on my softball team. You don't have, What about Julie? This is a little rough. Yeah, Julie, I love Julie, but she is not Scottie Pippen. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for laughing along with us. Please contact Brian about any opinions that he has that are wrong. Uh, like the football situation we had a lot of people reach out about that we loved it we are happy when you rate and review us it helps folks find us on different platforms and stay safe this weekend stay dry and remember to do politics better <laughs>